the second error adding to Christ was the problem that Paul was addressing in the church of Colossae. We are, by the way, in the letter of Colossians. If you haven't turned there already, you can turn there to chapter 2. As with the other concerns Paul has already raised in this short letter, these ancient problems have managed to find their way into churches for the last 2,000 years. And even now, as you will see, they find fertile soil to grow and to bear their poison fruit in the churches of our time. The main point of this text is that if you have died with Christ, that's a, that's a union statement. It's a union with Christ statement. If you have died with Christ, man-made religious traditions and restrictions, listen carefully, have no authority over you. No religious traditions or restrictions have authority over you. Someone may observe that earlier generations, in fact, every generation of Christianity has added rules and traditions to their practice of Christianity. And you might ask, why is that a problem? And that is a good question, and Paul tackles it head on and without equivocation. In fact, he's downright dogmatic about it. Or as Steve Lawson would say, he's not dogmatic, he's bulldogmatic on this point. Why does Paul ward us away from man-made traditions and regulations in the practice of Christian living? Well, Paul explains that if you have been buried with Christ, man-made traditions and practices and regulations are nothing more than, and here we go with the outline for this morning, Number one, religious sanctimony, and number two, obsolete shadows that turn our hearts away from, number three, the authentic substance, which is Christ. And so let's begin, as always, by standing to read our passage of Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Follow along now as I read, reading out of the ESV. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they're used. According to the human precepts and teachings, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Lord has spoken, and you can be seated. Well, by now you know that Paul's letter to the Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. Paul is trying to help the believers in the church of Colossae learn 
that for Christians, Jesus Christ is all in all. Our whole religion, our whole focus, the entirety of our focus is Jesus Christ. And everything else flows out of him. He is our all in all, whether we're talking about salvation, sanctification, or merely Christian flourishing in general. Christ is all, as Paul has already said in this text, um, it is the hope of glory. The hope of glory is this, Christ in you. That is the entirety of our hope, Christ in you. And may I say it again, this is the doctrine of union with Christ. You are in Christ and Christ in you. And, and consider this, because of our union with Christ, now, and before I say it, let me just say, I know I've already covered this with you, but you've got to get this. you just got to get this. You remember when you understood the sovereignty of God for the first time, and then every time you opened your Bible, you saw it everywhere. It's going to be the same thing with union with Christ. In the New Testament, you're going to see it everywhere. And so I want to help you burn it kind of into your heart. Because of our union with Christ, God thinks of us as identified with Christ in every way. His righteousness is our righteousness. His spirit is our spirit. We don't get the spirit apart from Christ or outside of Christ or in addition to Christ. The spirit is in Christ. You want the spirit, you've got to be in Christ. His death is ours. His resurrection, ours. His access to the Father, ours. His eternal life is ours. Listen to this. The Father's love and acceptance of Christ is ours. Christ's love for people is ours. That's why we love one another. And the list goes on and on. Because God thinks of us and identifies us in Christ, he relates to us differently than he did before we were justified by grace through faith. And beloved, I've already said this, but let me say it in a little different way. The importance of this doctrine cannot hardly be overstated. John Murray describes union with Christ as the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And likewise, Sinclair Ferguson describes union with Christ as the heart of evangelical theology, the very heart of evangelical theology. These strong statements affirm the biblical teaching that everything God has for us comes via union with Christ. The believer, the young believers in Colossae needed to learn this because they were in danger, not of losing their salvation, but in danger of adopting a counterfeit spirituality that only served to weaken and dilute their vital relationship and fellowship with Christ. This was no small matter, and Paul was seriously concerned about it. Let me demonstrate that for you. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Let no one pass judgment on you. Chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one disqualify you. Verse 20, Why do you submit to regulations? And then back in the previous passage, chapter 2, verse 8, He's already warned, see to it that no one takes you captive. He's talking about the same thing in all of these texts. These are serious warnings. 
serious warnings. And Paul understood our propensity for wandering away from Christ and becoming so entangled in religious traditions that our hearts get turned away from the Savior in favor of a system. Let me say that again. We get turned away from the Savior in favor of a system, a religious system, one that people can attain and control. More specifically, Paul wards us away from what I will call as point number one, religious sanctimony. Religious sanctimony. Now, sanctimony is not a term that we use a lot, and so I presume that most of us don't really know the definition of it. I had to look it up, and here's a good definition. The sanctimony is the action or belief that one uh, that what one does makes him morally superior to others. It's the action or the belief that communicates that one is morally superior to others. And that's exactly what the errorists in the Colossae were doing. They were judging these young believers to be spiritually inferior because all they had, all they had was Jesus. Now, what did the false teachers have in addition to Christ? Well, you pick up any evangelical commentary on the book of Colossians, and what you're going to find out is that um, pretty much everyone agrees that we don't know what the, uh, what the complexities and the specifics were of this errant doctrine. But we do know from this text that there were four particular errors that stood out to the Apostle Paul. Think of them as four polluted streams that were poisoning the river of their fellowship with Christ. Four polluted streams. And the first polluted stream of sanctimony that was poisoning their faith might be called humanism. Uh, and here I'm not really talking about classical humanism, but back in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In the religion of these false teachers, the final authority on things pertaining to life and godliness was not the scriptures. It was not the scriptures. It was the magisterium, or it was whatever their governing body, and the things they had come up with, the doctrines that they invented. These were the traditions of men. As you know, human philosophy is an attempt to answer the big questions of life and existence. And most of the time, their starting point for so-called wisdom is not the scriptures, but rather the inventions and imaginations and precepts of men. It, it's whatever they think is the most wise perspective, or whoever has the, the most control over the discussion is going to win whether that be pope or cult leader or, you know, pastor or whatever it is. The appeal of such religion is that it always sounds so intellectual, so heady, so erudite, so educated and, and superior. But for all its sanctimonious superiority, the religious traditions of men actually bring harm rather than help to the church. Paul's words to the church of Corinth seem appropriate here. 
when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I fear, I feel, a, I'm sorry, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And by the way, I would submit that he's talking about union with Christ. This is marriage. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so the first polluted stream is humanism, human philosophy and tradition. The second polluted stream of sanctimony is what we might call legalism. Notice in verse 16, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. And then in verse 21, we learn that they were saying of, of certain foods, don't touch this, don't taste that, don't handle that other. You know, it's like walking through the grocery store with your kids and the mom's always saying, no, 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 don't touch that. Don't touch that bread, don't touch that cheese, don't touch, stay away from it. Except for them, it was an issue of spirituality for the false teachers. We don't eat certain foods. And while we don't know all the specifics of what the false teachers believed, it does seem that they were borrowing heavily from the religion called Judaism. It was the religion of the Jews. Specifically, they were interested in Old Testament ceremonial laws and the kind of precepts and laws regarding food, drink, and holidays. They developed a system of rules regarding what one was permitted or forbidden to eat or drink. The message was clear. The message was, it's certainly necessary to believe in Jesus as your starting point for Christianity, but if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to flourish as a Christian, you need to learn the food rules. And we don't even know what the food rules were. It's interesting to note, however, that while the Old Testament declared many possible food choices to be unclean, there really weren't any rules for drink, per se. Apparently, these false teachers had created new restrictions guard, uh, 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 with respect to what they were allowed to drink and when and how. They also had a high regard for religious holidays. And Paul mentions festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. The festivals kind of went along with the feasts. And there were three kinds of these. There was the annual feast, like in, like in the, the Feast of uh, Atonement, the Day of Atonement. Uh, there was the monthly feast and celebration that came along with the new moon, very, a very Jewish uh, event. And then there were the weekly Sabbaths, which you're familiar with. In their estimation, you could be a mature, you couldn't be a mature, flourishing Christian if you opted out of these events. You had to be there. And there is some, some uh, tie-in with the Old Testament law because all the males were required to come to uh, the feasts. No matter where they lived, they were required to come to Jerusalem. And even now, today, there are quasi-Christian groups that tell us that if you, you're, you're not going to be a mature Christian if you attend a church that doesn't meet on Saturday. There are other groups that say you, are, you cannot be a mature Christian unless you meet on Sunday. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but my last trip to Israel, 
it stood out to me suddenly when I realized that all the evangelical churches met on the Sabbath. They met on Saturday. It's not because their theology had changed, but it's because in that culture, everybody works on Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week. It was the first day of work. And so rather than uh, bucking that and have, making it hard on people's jobs, they opted, most of the evangelical churches opted to meet on Saturday. And Paul would say in this passage, and he's going to say it again later in Colossians, don't let that be an issue. This is not an issue with God. It's a non-issue. It has nothing to do with your spirituality. And others engage in the same sanctimony when they either require or forbid Christians to partake in certain, certain food or drink. Now, before we get too far along in censuring these people for judging one's spiritual maturity based on external practices and traditions, let's just take a moment to look in the mirror, shall we? Okay, so uh, this will be both fun and convicting. Have you ever looked at someone and in your heart of hearts, you just had this negative, judgy feeling about their spirituality because of their Christmas decorations? Some of you think, boy, if you don't decorate for Christmas, I mean, how can you be a Christian? Christmas, Christian, you know, they go together. And others will say, oh, no, no, no. You put up a Christmas tree in your house, and I'm not even coming over. That is unspiritual. It's pagan. And what about the Easter bunny? Uh, he's a danger. And what about those unrighteous Easter eggs? Um, is that an issue of spirituality for you? Now, I've never heard of anyone saying, you, ought, you know, you ought to do that if you're a Christian. But I have heard many say, look, that's Christians have nothing to do with looking, having their kids look for those little plastic eggs with candy in them. Um, I remember a time when, when it was a settled fact in the evangelical culture that going to a movie theater was carnal. And if a Christian woman wore pants, especially in church, wore pants, she was clearly of questionable spirituality. Uh, can a pastor have facial hair? Uh, Randy Barlow, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, and Brent Osterberg, too, who's probably preaching right now. Can a, can a pastor have facial hair? And how long can it be before it transgresses the rules of the holy hair length? After all, everyone knows the biblical principle that if your hair's too long, there's sin in your heart. Now, before we judge such people for being so judgy, are you bothered by the fact that I entered the pulpit today without a tie? <laughs> There's one honest soul right there. What if I wore a short sleeve shirt and no jacket? Of course, we all know that pastors who wear Hawaiian shirts in the pulpit are certifiably and verifiably compromisers and apostates. I mean, this is the way we think. I mean, we don't mean to think this way. It's just... It just happens. This kind of stuff comes out of our hearts, and Paul is saying, beware. Beware. Be careful. How, how would you feel, if, 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 if you haven't been hit yet, how would you feel if you came into the chapel and found that Kyle had erected a, dr a drum set on the stage or allowed someone to play the electric guitar? 
years ago when we introduced the djembe. Is the djembe up here? Nope, we replaced it with the cajon, which is a, another one of those percussion instruments. When we brought the djembe in for the first time uh, to, to uh, augment our worship, some people actually left the church never to return. Uh, declaring something like, the rock beat is evil in every form. And Christians practice paganism when the bongo is in the background. I actually had a young lady tell me, when I was young, told me, uh, Christian rock is like Christian murder. Hmm. Even as a teenager, that seemed like a bit of a stretch. Um, I suspect some of you are, are really kind of uncomfortable with this whole conversation. Now let's remember that Paul, what Paul is saying here. Therefore, do not let anyone pass judgment on you over these superficial external issues. In other words, don't let them convince you that you are second-rate or unspiritual or somehow deficient because you haven't subscribed to these man-made regulations. Now, he's not saying fight about it. He's saying, don't you allow that their false test of spirituality be something that interferes with your fellowship with Christ. None of that has anything to do with your fellowship with God in Christ. Jesus didn't wear a tie or a jacket. He didn't have a building even to worship in or a home. If you were in Christ, listen, you have everything God offers. If you're a baby Christian, I mean, if you came to know Jesus this morning and came to church, you walked into this building with everything God has to offer. You just have to grow up into it. It all comes from Christ. It all comes from Christ. Your focus should be on growing in Christ, learning Christ, loving Christ, worshiping Christ, and batting down anything in your heart that interferes, or in your practice, or in your entertainment, or whatever it is, that interferes with your growing fellowship with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, we are not in any way encouraging antinomianism. Antinomianism is a belief that the law of God has no place in the life of the Christian. We don't believe that. Uh, obedience is a, is, a, is a necessity in the Christian life. We obey the word of God. But here's the distinction. There's a difference between obeying the word of God and obeying human traditions. Submitting yourself as if they were divine authority under the precepts of men. Those who are in Christ actually love to obey the word of God. And, and, and it bothers us that we, we aren't as obedient to it as we should be, as we want to be. It's like that, that Romans 7, things I want to do, I find that I don't do, and things I don't do, I find myself doing. They strive to bring themselves under the authority of Christ in all things, not only in their food and clothing and music, but in their thoughts and words. In fact, Paul told the church in Corinth, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of Christ. Test it. Bring it up against the word of God. Ask for help if necessary to bring the word of God to bear 
there are indeed governing principles in the Bible that tell us how to handle the gray areas, right? I mean, some of the issues I just raised, is it appropriate to wear a tie? And Russ said, amen, right? <laughs> um, but why is it appropriate? Why is it appropriate? Why is it appropriate in this culture? I don't, I don't even know if I have a, a great answer for that, except that um, in, in our context, in the South, in, 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 in this church, uh, we don't want to do anything to distract from worship. I don't know, anything that would cause someone to stumble, anything that would exalt self and, and, uh, and diminish the foibles and the concerns of maybe younger Christians. The Word of God has everything we need to understand how to deal with the gray areas. Go to John, I'm sorry, go to Romans 14, for example. 1 Corinthians, for example. This is not about flaunting your privileges. It's not about flaunting your liberties. Much of the Christian life, for the sake of other people, is that we restrict our own liberties. But Paul is saying here, don't put yourself under the authority of man-made restrictions that are not absolutely verifiable in God's word. The authoritative scriptures instruct us, you know, in, in all of these areas. For example, we would never say that going to a movie theater is sinful. It's not inherently sinful. However, the authoritative scriptures instruct us with words like this, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy to be praised, think about these things. And so I would say, before you go to a movie, go to a Christian movie review and see what they say. Look at the warnings. Look at the whatever. And run yourself through this and say, is it going to be true? Is it going to be honorable? Is it going to be lovely, pure? Is it going to be pure? And is it going to be pure? And I don't know, is it, I mean, is it going to be pure? Think about these things. And Paul cautions Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts. Is it going to inflame your lusts? Don't go to that. Don't go to that. That's not a man-made tradition. It's the word of God saying, look, that's not good for you. And it doesn't bring glory to Christ. It's not going to help you love him more. You see, beloved, the word of God is sufficient in itself to teach us what it means to walk in a manner that is consistent with being in Christ. To live in a manner that puts the concerns of others ahead of our own liberties. The word of God is sufficient. Why should we look to the traditions of men? And Paul cautions us to beware of religious sanctimony in the forms of humanism, legalism. And thirdly, the third polluted stream of religious sanctimony we might call mysticism. In verse 18, Paul says, Do not let anyone disqualify you by insisting on the worship of angels. And the word disqualify comes from the word uh, brabius, which is actually, it was the name of the official who served as an, um, as an umpire in the ancient games. The umpire sat in judgment it was his job to sit in judgment over the contestants of the games. And if an athlete broke a rule, 
the umpire had the authority to disqualify him and declare him unworthy of the prize. The false teachers around the church of Colossae made themselves out to be the leading religious authorities. They viewed themselves as the spiritual umpires who could declare that unless you play by our rules and are, you're going to be disqualified from all that God has promised to bless you with otherwise. We are the judges. You could call this Phariseeism. And by the way, the worship of angels, I mean, that may sound weird and creepy, but um, rem let's remember the fact that the angels themselves refused to be worshipped. When people saw an angel, they were tempted to worship them. And probably in this context with with the book of Colossians, where they believed that matter is evil and spirit is good. They had a really hard time with the word becoming flesh. You get that? And so they had to come up with something to bridge the gap because, uh, because whatever God is going to do on earth, he can't do directly. He's got to do indirectly. And so they had this idea of, some, of these beings, these angelic beings that were progressively less holy and more earthly. And, 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 and finally, at the end of that was Jesus. And so when they worshipped, they tried to worship high, so they would grab hold of one of the angels. But the angels themselves have made it clear in the narratives of Scripture that they don't want to be worshipped. They dare not to be worshipped. I mean, witness the Apostle John's encounter with the angel on the island of Patmos. It's the first thing that happened to him in that vision. The, the angel appeared and he fell on his face in worship. And the angel said, stand up, you're going to get me in trouble. Uh, don't worship me. But the false teachers' mysticism didn't terminate in the worship of angels. Paul says, verse 18, uh, they go on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. It seems apparent that it was while they were worshiping these angels that they received these, these ecstatic visions. And by the way, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 14, we read this. Here's the prophet of God declaring to the other men who said they were prophets. He said this, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to, to, uh, to you a lying vision. A lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And you keep moving and moving on through the book of Jeremiah. You come to chapter 23 and you read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. I mean, it sounds like it could have been written in our own time, right? It sounds like it could have been written yesterday. There have always been sanctimonious religion, religionists determined to draw people into their own error by claiming to have had a vision from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And beloved, do not believe them. Do not believe them. Why? Because you have Christ and he has spoken. That's why often when we 
pray at the beginning of the service, we'll have someone read the text. I'm sorry, when we read the text at the beginning of the service, we end, typically, we end that scripture reading by saying, the Lord has spoken. And we want you to know, if you're only able to be in this service for five minutes, you will hear from God. Because the word of God, the word of Christ will be read. And so the first three polluted streams of sanctimony are humanism, legalism, and mysticism. The fourth polluted stream that threatened to poison the river of their fellowship with Christ is asceticism. Asceticism is defined as severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Now these were the ultra-humble false teachers. The ultra-humble false teachers. These were the men who dressed in shabby clothes and lived in caves and separated themselves from people and remained celibate. I mean, they were, they were always doing social distancing. Their life was about social distancing. They remained celibate, they deprived themselves of food, and they thought that true Christian flourishing comes when you deny yourself the pleasures of life to the extreme. In verse 23, Paul says, these four sanctimonious philosophies of Christian maturity in Christ and Christian flourishing do indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, brothers and sisters, I... I have more to say here, but I think I'm going to postpone to next week because I've hit my time, and we want to be sensitive to that. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul, not just in this passage, but all through the, the Apostle, or in specific other places in Paul's other writings, he wants you to know the joy of knowing Christ. And if you're bored with what you know of Jesus Christ, then I would just say you're probably a little lazy in pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Because if you're digging for gold in the Word, you're just looking for Jesus. And you know what, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be you're going to be reading the Word of God. And you know what? There are other really good books that can help you. Once a year, I try to read most of John Owen's book called The Glory of Christ. I just want it to affect me. Right now, I'm reading a book called, um, what's it called, Jason? Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly. Uh, the book begins with a, a, a kind of an exposition on the heart of Jesus. The whole book is about the heart of Jesus. And every chapter, I come away thinking, this is glorious. This is glorious. Not, not the writing. The writing's good. Christ. Glorious. Oh, beloved, there's so much to learn. So much to learn from the scriptures. Don't let anyone deprive you or sit in judgment over you because the only thing you have is Christ. Christ is all you need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together, abbreviated as it may be. Nevertheless, you feed us with your word and I think have fed us with your word this morning. So Lord, would you 
burn these truths into our hearts, would you reignite the flame of our love for Christ, cause us to adore him more, to love him more. Pray, Father, that our hearts would be more captivated by his glory and majesty, his kindness, his gentleness, his lowliness, his compassion, his holiness, his wrath, his mercy, so many things, Father, and and all of these are infinite perfections that we will never exhaust. So help us, O Lord, I pray, for the sake of the glory of Jesus and for our own joy, we pray.